Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Hillary. And this is the Probably Not Lupus podcast. Season two, we are back to discuss more medical mysteries and rare, strange, or unusual case studies. These are based on mostly true stories collected from our friends, medical history, journals, and fellow doctors. To protect privacy, names, dates, and locations may have been altered. Get ready for your medical mystery bolus. Probably Not Lupus is a show about our favorite medical mysteries. Nothing the hosts say should be taken for medical advice or opinion. We are not experts, nor are we journalists. It's just for fun. So enjoy. Evan was only 35 years old when he experienced a rare type of stroke while out training for a marathon. Luckily, after spending four days in the emergency room, Evan was discharged home and made a complete physical recovery. So well, in fact, his neurologists were confident his risk of another stroke went down to baseline. But what about the other types of recovery? Listen now as we welcome back Evan Kaltbeck, a cognitive neuroscientist, to discuss the mental and emotional cost of disease. Welcome to the 19th episode of the Probably Not Lupus podcast, the penultimate episode of season two. Yeah, I again, we made it. It's 19. We did it. We're here. We're thriving, kind of. And we're happy to bring back another repeat guest who everyone seemed to love in episode two. Yes. As we teased last week, we are so lucky to welcome back Evan Kelbick today a cognitive neuroscientist who told us all about his rare and specific type of stroke affecting the posterior inferior cerebellar artery. It's from season one, episode two. And if you haven't already checked out that episode, we highly suggest you go back and listen to that before listening on to the rest of today. It was so fascinating to be able to listen to him, a neuroscientist, describe how he accurately diagnosed himself with a stroke. The physical story was just so compelling. Yeah. I think hearing it from someone who is a neuroscientist is a whole other story because, you know, they know what they're talking about. They know the brain. Yes. He is a teacher. He is a professor, you know, like exactly. So fascinating. But what we didn't have time to get into then because of how fascinating the story was, was the mental and emotional side of his disease and convalescence. You know, we focus on the rare, strange, and unusual things that can go wrong in the human body, but to assume our care for patient ends once we have the correct diagnosis is just not right. So really we need to focus on all of their well-being, mental, physical, and emotional. So today we are going to welcome back Evan to talk more about the mental and emotional cost of disease. And this time Emma gets to be here on the interview as well. Yeah, I'm so happy to hear it live and not just a playback and reacting. Although that was fun, I definitely prefer when we record together and we get to see our guests together and in real life, in real time. Totally. So we're going to take our break early today and keep it short because we're going to let Evan do most of the talking for the rest of this episode. Yeah, enjoy.
Welcome back from the break. We're going to dive right into our interview with Evan Kelvick, cognitive neuroscientist. When we last spoke, Evan, I interviewed you solo, and then I played clips of that interview for Emma to get her live reaction. Uh, we were still new. That was only episode two, so we weren't locked into our format yet, but today she's back with us to do the interview together because it was one of our most listened to episodes of all of our podcasts to date. And that's understandable because it was a fascinating story. <laughs> Uh, but our experience as listeners, I imagine is very different from your experience because you lived it. We're really curious to know more about you and your experience. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I'll try to be an open book. What would you like to know about specifically? I'll speak for myself. I feel like I filled in a lot of the gaps and what I think I would have done if I was in the same mm -hmm. situation as you, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that's probably why it's such a compelling story, right? There's sort of this thriller aspect of the what ifs, but I imagine for you, those same what ifs are much more anxiety provoking and not just interesting. There are some that I guess have been. I'm not sure I know which things you're referring to though. Are you talking about the actual stroke itself or are we talking about like the aftermath psychological components? Yes, exactly. And, you know, background, if people haven't listened to the last episode, when we last spoke to you, you had been discharged from the hospital mm. and you had spent, you know, four days in the ER and you had your follow-up brain scans and you were really told your risks were back down to baseline. I also remember there was a point where you said like in the emergency room, you said to your doctors like, oh, will I be able to like finish my run today? <laughs> they were like, no, yeah. no, definitely not. So although your physical rehab is complete now and you I'm sure mm -hmm. can go back to running if you choose choose. When did you first recognize that there was going to be like a mental, emotional recovery post illness as well? Oh, pretty shortly afterwards. I started to recover from uh, symptoms at different times. Each one sort of uh, was relieved. Um, yeah, on totally different timescales. So just as a, a quick overview, as it happened, the first sign was intense neck pain on the right side. And it wasn't at first too painful. Um, it wasn't something I necessarily thought was unusual, maybe just sort of, um, you know, muscle tension, but it kept yeah. growing. And then it grew beyond uh, any pain I had experienced in that area of my body. And once that happened, I realized, okay, this is something I shouldn't just run through and so I stopped running. The next thing that happened was as soon as I stopped running, my vision started spinning counterclockwise and I started falling over to my right. Like, uh, I, I guess I lost muscle tone on the right side of my body on a lot of it. So I tried to look for support. And then as I was flipping through, and I think I mentioned in the last podcast, I ended up calling my mom. And um, once I spoke to her and uh, heard myself, I discovered that I uh, was slurring my speech. That was another big sign, right? That's when you first told us you identified like, oh, this is a stroke. Yeah. Yeah. So I knew at that point it was a stroke before that. I thought uh, maybe a migraine or something like that, right. but um, not, definitely a stroke at that point. And <clears throat> so I, you know, I went through some different things and tried to um, identify 
the location of the stroke, given my neuroscience background. And um, we went through all that in the last podcast. But I don't know if I mentioned that I, I started getting relief from each symptom one by one. First, the spinning stopped within about five minutes or so. Um, so my vision started to stabilize after about five minutes. Then the actual uh, muscle tone loss on my, uh, well, first in my face, I could speak normally after maybe 20 or 30 minutes. And then by the end of the day, I, um, I could walk roughly straight. It was still a little clumsy, but it was, um, it was stable. But it took several weeks before that neck pain went away. And I was very, very sensitive about moving my head at all. And because I didn't want to crack my neck ever again, right. which has happened incidentally, just spontaneously. And I think partly because I, you know, attempted not to so much, you know, I'm, I'm yeah, just reconfiguring my muscles um, habits, right? Sort of instilling a new kind of habit in them. The pain was the longest remaining symptom too. So although it was the first presenting, it sounds like it was the last to leave. Yeah, several weeks. So this happened at the end of April and it wasn't until really the end of May that it didn't feel like I had pain anymore in the neck. Wow. But it wasn't until really the, well, this is an interesting aspect of the story. It wasn't until several months later that a new development occurred for me. So um, I still couldn't, I didn't have full range of motion. I first of all, didn't want to really move my neck that much. I was very sensitive to it. On top of that, I just couldn't. When I tried to test it out, it was just too tense. And I started to get a little bit of relief and could slightly, I would try gradually to start to stretch my neck a little bit. Right? Now, did I mention at this time in the last podcast that at the beginning of August, I went on a silent meditation retreat? No. Okay. <laughs> because I'm your friend, I happen to know about the silent meditation retreat. And I was really hoping you were going to talk about that today. Oof, so this was a whole other thing now. Okay. So I, uh, I did this as, um, I don't know, really what uh, I, I had always wanted to do it. And I thought this is a good opportunity, right? Um, I'm in the healing process. And by that time, I had got that, gotten that second scan, sort of the all clear um, that I was, you know, I still had to be on blood thinners for another nine months, but otherwise I was told everything's good and safe as long as I don't crack my neck anymore. Um, so I went on this retreat. Um, it was a 10 day silent meditation retreat and I made it uh, to the end of the eighth day. And I had a lot of very interesting experiences but relevant to the stroke is that by the end of that eighth day, um, I was gradually starting to, over the course of the week, starting to uh, slightly stretch uh, my muscles in general. And that included my neck just a little bit, a few percent every day. I was trying to, to extend my range. But at about 7.30 p.m. on the end of the eighth day, I heard a little pop <laughs> in my neck from doing these stretches and I'm in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> like, I'm like an hour and a half, two hours away from, uh, any hospital. And now, uh, my heart starts racing and I think, okay, well this, I, I got a panic attack. Uh, damn, damn, damn. Uh, shouldn't have done that silly. And 
I was like, okay, maybe I can just breathe through this. Maybe I can meditate through this. And um, I could not. My vision started vibrating. Uh, it didn't start rotating like it did on the original stroke, but it started getting really intensely uh, erratic. And now this is amplifying my panic. Now I'm full blown just losing it. And uh, But at the same time, I've got such an internalized sense of this social norm of maintaining silence that I'm like, how am I going to ask for help right now? And I decided like, okay, this, I need to break this silence to, to I need help. I definitely need help. So I, I tried to quietly, calmly approach uh, one of the teachers and told him what was that, that I was having problems. <laughs> he didn't understand. Uh, he didn't understand what was going on. And he uh, just thought I was having general uh, uh, issues with the meditation or something like that. And so he said something like, you know, just be well, be happy, something like that. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. You don't understand what's going on right now. I, I really need an ambulance. I need I need help, 911. And uh, then he got it. And so I waited while... Um, an ambulance was being called in this uh, you know, this little um, bunk that they give us. And at that time, at that point, I had uh, a more powerful subjective near-death experience than the actual stroke. It felt like I was closer to dying at that point than I felt as I was having the stroke or in the ambulance on the hospital back in April. The sensation was something like, uh, it felt like every sense, that uh, every, every touch sensation, uh, my visual field, everything felt like there was just this weird tension to it. It felt like it was a sheet in a book that was being about to be ripped right out. And, uh, and this just, again, just amplified this panic. I, again, tried to meditate it away and could not. Um, and so when it got so severe that I thought I was just on the brink of death, I just decided, no, no, I'm not going to die. And I just started running as fast as I could. Like literally running? I literally started, I got up and I just started running. I, I, I had, there was nothing else in my mind that I felt I could do, uh, than just, I had to do something. Right. So I just got up and ran and that actually helped a little bit. Uh, it actually did. I don't know. It's, I guess it synced me up with my rapid heart rate. And so because of that, I could uh, feel the minor adjustments. I got a sense of control back a little bit. And there was, a, there was a, another kind, very kind um, teacher at uh, the center who just stayed with me and just held my hand the whole time. And that itself was extremely comforting. Um, while we waited for the ambulance, yeah. So um, that was quite an experience. Didn't see a doctor till, so this that happened about 7.30. Didn't see a doctor until like 5 a.m. <laughs> and I was, it was several hours of that. Um, How long until the ambulance got there? At least an hour, I'd say. Wow, um, so yeah, real remote location. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then was it a small hospital, like a small center you were brought to as well? The hospital was in Gatineau, uh, Quebec. So just, just across from Ottawa. Um, this, the meditation center I was at was in Montebello. 
So that was interesting. I eventually calmed down, spoke to the doctor in the early morning once they finally had time for me. And he reassured me that what I was having was just an intense panic attack. So that was nice. He said I was at no risk. I asked him if that were to happen again, what's the worst that could happen? And he just told me, well, you could pass out. But I mean, that's uh, I'm like, great. Yeah, I'll pass out. No problem. <laughs> if you say it's fine to pass out, I'll pass out. It's great. But um, but thinking you're going to die, you know, you know, I'll, I'll fight it as much as I can. So that was that experience. And um, subsequent to that, uh, because that was a stronger experience than the original stroke, at least subjectively, uh, felt like I was closer to death. I now started having panic attacks on a regular basis after that especially at night. This would happen multiple times a night. I was having really bad sleep for months. Occasionally, it still happens now. I would say maybe one every, maybe two every three months, something like that. But they're rare and they're mild. They diminish in frequency and intensity over time. And I tried to work with it as much as I could. I understood that they weren't, the panic attacks, of course, themselves aren't threatening. Uh, and so as long as I could become aware of what was going on, I could do breathing exercises. I could uh, move my body if I needed to, to regain that control. But the panic attacks were not limited to when I was asleep. I would at that time have them during the day as well. Um, and I remember at one point I was driving and I got one while I was driving and um, I was, I had to stop at a red light. And I nearly, near the, the red light stayed on for almost long enough for me to uh, decide to just take my seatbelt off and walk out of the car into the intersection because it was better than dealing with it. It was that intense in the car. So, so I decided not to drive after that for a while until they were not happening as often. And they would also occur another big factor that would provoke them was if I just found myself alone, um, especially, I, I love going hiking. If I would go on a hike and I was, uh, so first of all, I wouldn't do it alone anymore because of this, but I also couldn't really go that far away from the city. So I was in back in Vancouver at this time now, uh, moved back to Vancouver. And I was doing North Shore hikes and I would hike along the Sea to Sky Highway. But if I got far from the road, it would really cause anxiety. I also couldn't swim. So I love swimming as well. Couldn't do it. Couldn't get past shoulder depth into the water. But I can now, which is nice. Yeah. All this, I, yeah, I worked with and talked to counselors about it. It's quite helpful. I'm sure our listeners especially listeners who have panic attacks would appreciate hearing more about some of those therapies and treatments that you tried that had successes, sure. because I'm sure this wasn't an easy journey to make those panic attacks reduce in severity and frequency and duration. Uh, no, <laughs> it was not easy. It took a while. And it, like I said, it's still an ongoing process. Like I actually had, um, I had a very, very minor one last night. That was the most recent one. Um, I, I was in bed and turned over and heard a little crack in, the, in my lower back. And um, that was enough to do it. Right? Just hearing these cracks just anywhere along my spinal column now is, uh, is just a trigger for me. But 
On top of that, I would also occasionally have these dreams that uh, would include things like bees. I, I can distinctly remember on at least three occasions having a dream where I'm having to deal with bees coming at me. And one of the ways I dealt with the bee, with one of these bees um, that was would come between my head and shoulder was a reflexive uh, just a, just a reflexive movement to try to crush the bee between my, between my head and shoulder. Right. But a big neck movement, massive neck movement. And so that would instantly wake me up and I'd be in a panic attack. Right. And I don't know why this kept uh, coming up, right. Specifically bees. I've never had a problem with bees. Like bees don't bother me at all when I'm awake, but for whatever reason, yeah, they would cause me to, um, to actually, do these really jerky head movements, not just in my dream, it would show up in real life as well. That would wake me up. I'm curious what the current cognitive neuroscience research on dreams is. You know, someone, I okay, I was teaching cognitive neuroscience today. I had a course on, on concepts and core domains was the lecture topic. And someone asked about dreams and I had to tell them, I, I personally don't know much at all. And I'm not sure that it is a well-studied area. I don't think it is. I don't look into the literature often, but whenever I do, I find that it's it's relatively shallow compared to any other area in cognitive neuroscience. Despite the fact that I love dreaming, I lucid dream, active dreamer, love it. Um, but there, yeah, the research is is really just not there. If anyone has a guess, <laughs> if anyone knows what the symbolism in dreams is all about. Oh boy. I can't wait to hear what we find out. Right. Yeah, exactly. Now, of course, it's, it's always going to be filtered through the individual's own relationship with whatever object they're representing in their dreams. Right. So it's strange because I, yeah, like I said, I'm good with bees. Me and bees are cool. <laughs> Did you do like, I know you mentioned counseling. Was there any like specific flavor of counseling that you found helpful? You, yes and no. I would say it's hard to tease apart in retrospect, because this healing process was continuous, despite the fact that I only, uh, I, I did counseling uh, twice. I saw a first on the recommendation of a friend whose opinion I hold in very high regard. I went to a naturopathic doctor here in Vancouver, and we worked together for six to eight weeks or so. And I found that that was quite helpful for me. There were techniques used in it that I was highly skeptical of and still am. But it felt like one of those things that as long as you as long as you have a buy-in uh, and intention for you know getting the job done, then um, then that that to me is the biggest factor. Right? And then I had a more through an online counselor at the time, maybe six another six to eight sessions of just uh, kind of insight therapy. And um, I found that helpful as well. But then in both cases, at around that time, I started getting uh, diminishing returns. And um, at, that, at that point, I thought, okay, I can, you know, once, once, I, once I get there, for me, um, then I move on, try something else, try to maximize what I can get out of another technique. Six to eight weeks is a pretty good trial run. Anyways, I don't think anyone can be upset about that. That's pretty good. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. You also mentioned breath work. 
which mm. I know there's lots of different information out there. Lots of different people. Oh yes. Stress, anxiety, just breathe. And I know for a lot of people, their thoughts are like, okay, well, what does that actually mean for me? And it just doesn't help. Did you find any specific like one, two, three, four hold, or, you know, something like that, that you found particularly helpful? I tried a few of these, like I, yeah, there was like box breathing and all of these different, um, I tried a few different techniques, but I found uh, very much like what you're describing. I found all of these to be artificial and it felt like the technique was like I was having to imprint my nervous system with some really artificial technique. So I decided to just play around with the breath until I could find a flow state. And my goal was just to maximize my sense of internal control, my locus of control, right? Just um, as long as I could do that, feel that, um, that I, I was uh, through active breathing, how, whatever, however that showed up in the moment, um, could regulate my heart rate, even if that you know, takes some time to, to get there. Because that's what I knew from that experience at the meditation center is the thing that helped the most is just feeling like I am in control, which was a huge thing that I lost after the stroke. I felt afterwards like this could happen at any time because it can. Right? Stroke can happen literally any time. And it literally did to you. We are just walking time bombs. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, as, as much as control can perhaps be an illusion the sense of it when you feel like you have it then it's um you're just in a better space you're in a better mind space more robust right i knew control was a big issue for me uh, part of what i was discussing with that naturopathic doctor was this sense i had after, immediately after the stroke okay so if you remember I described um, after leaning on a tree to gain my balance, um, I called uh, my mom, I called an ambulance, but then I went and sat on a uh, bus bench, right? So I was in a bus shelter. When I was in the bus shelter, I tried to get a lot of people's attention just to come give me support, uh, just to be with me and, you know, in, in case I passed out or something like that. And what I found was I, as I tried to get people's attention, the first four groups of people totally ignored me and looked at me like I was, uh, uh, no, not, um, not today. So that, that was a big part of it, right? I, I started feeling after that in a really deep way that I couldn't rely on people around me. I couldn't, I, I didn't think people would help out in an emergency if I needed them. Eventually, a group of people did notice that I was sort of <laughs> in need of help and came over and that was nice. But, but when the, you know, the first four groups, they, they passed by, didn't do anything. Um, just gave me strange looks. That was, yeah, that, that was a big deal because, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's a big sense of general social trust is lost and sense of safety so um and sense of and sense of control right it's an option that i felt like was always available right even though in, you live in a big city and everyone's a stranger you still have this in the back of your mind this sense like uh if you really need people in an emergency they'll be there right that the bystander effect maybe isn't as uh, pronounced as we learn in, in intro psych courses, right? But no, it is. That's a powerful effect. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. So, um, so anything that, yeah, the, the entire goal there was just regain a sense of internal control. I'm sure again, another relatable feeling for many of our listeners. So we appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Now I do have one more question for our listeners, because when we last spoke, you did tell us that the first successful call you made was to your mom, yeah. uh, who you then, you then, you know, quickly had to hang up on to call an ambulance. Mm-hmm. So everyone wants to know how is your mother and how did she recover from having a son so young <laughs> suffer from a stroke? Oh, she's good. Yeah. She's of course, uh, she's very happy that I'm still around. I don't know if I can really speak for her. It's uh, she's she's just very happy about it. She's good, uh, and I have spent I've I've worked on reassuring her that um, not only am I okay, I'm I'm better than ever now, right? I'm I expect to uh, uh, I don't expect this to happen again. The neurologist, I, I you know I've told her over and over again that the neurologist told me I have no higher likelihood than baseline anymore of this happening again. Uh, so I remind her of that, um, or I, I used to, I don't have to anymore. She, um, it, it hasn't come up in a uh, good year actually. So no, she's good. She doesn't seem, I'm, I'm sure on some level she worries about it, but, uh, I'm sure on some uh, level, every mother worries about yeah. her son, but we just had to make sure I was going to say any mom. Yeah, totally. I was actually fortunate enough at the time as well. I didn't mention this that um, my and my mom wasn't in Ottawa at the time, but my dad and my brother actually were. Uh, I've got fa- extended family in Ottawa, so they just met me at the hospital when I was there. So that was nice. That helped get me through the night, and uh, they were quite pleased that I survived that as well. Yeah, my dad. We all are. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah good to be here. Well, thank you. Again, we appreciate you coming and sharing your insight with us. Are there any other parting thoughts you want to leave us with today? I was going to recommend that people don't crack their necks, but uh, just don't do it in a twisting, violent motion. (laughs) Have a vertebral basal or artery insufficiency test before you have a cervical adjustment. It is a requirement for all naturopathic doctors and chiropractors in British Columbia. Great idea. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you again for coming back. Thank you so much. Yeah. We really appreciate it. I'm sure the listeners will too. And I can't wait to hear the comments we get back on this one. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Hillary. Thanks, Emma. Thank you, Evan. All right. We'll let you get going. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Well, thank you so much to everyone for listening. And thanks to Evan again for coming on with us today. Yeah. What a great interview. So glad to have him back. So glad to round out episode 19 with you. I likewise next week is our last episode. I know another season comes to an end. Time flies really. Yes, it really does. And then we're going to take a little break, which I'm sure is going to go by way faster than we ever think or imagine. It always does, but it's the best time of the year. So yes. And we hope everyone else enjoys a nice holiday season as well. And after next week, you will see us again or hear us again sometime in January, 2022 date tbd tba but we're already excited for it and thanks for listening hopefully you tune in next week to our wrap-up episode of the season see you next week Bye. bye thanks for listening to this week's episode if you want to support our show you can subscribe to us on apple spotify google or wherever you get your podcasts maybe even give us a rating and leave us a comment Probably Not Lupus is written, recorded, edited, and produced by us alone, still in our bedrooms. 
If you want to chat with us, you can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Gmail at probably not lupus.